0: Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our Scripture reading for our sermon text. This morning, we are going to look together in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 20 to 25. For those who have been here throughout Lent, you know that we've just finished a series on repentance And today we come to sort of a culmination of that series as we look together at Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. This is God's holy word for us today. This is a text speaking about Abraham, and it picks up in verse 20, and it says, No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's holy word for us today. Let's pray. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed in your wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower now the preaching of your word, we pray, that we might receive it with faith and eagerness to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Christianity, there's a lot of different categories you can divide Christians into. This morning, I want to pick just one of those categories that we can split Christians into, and it has to do with different people's views about Jesus. There are two kinds of views about Jesus, and I call these the cross Christians and the kingdom Christians. Cross Christians are really big... On the death of Jesus. It's all about the death of Jesus. It's so focused on Jesus as crucified, died, buried, risen. It's so focused on the death of Jesus that the cross Christian sometimes doesn't really see how the life of Jesus fits into the picture. You know, if if the main thing is... Bleeding on the cross and dying on the cross, and then, then what's all this manger talk and growing up in Nazareth? I mean, what a waste of time. Just parachute down, land on the tree, say it's finished, and get on with it. What's all this miracle stuff and these parables about yeast and mustard seeds? And what, what are you talking about? Just get on with the stuff of the gospel, right? The death of Jesus. Cross Christians are so focused on the death of Jesus that sometimes they might struggle to see what's the point of the life? Where does the life of Jesus really fit into this picture? What does it do for me that the cross doesn't already do? The other kind is a kingdom Christian. Now, the kingdom Christian, it's all about the life of Jesus. They love those parables, more mustard parables, more parables about seeds and sticks and farmers, more miracles, more showdowns with the Pharisees, more teaching about morality and ethics and God and the kingdom. They're all about the kingdom, the teachings, the morals, the ethics, the lessons, the influence of Jesus. And they're so focused on the life that sometimes the kingdom Christian doesn't quite see how the death fits into the picture. Man, Jesus was going along. He was doing all this wonderful stuff. It's just a shame it got cut short with an untimely death. Think of how much more he could have done if he had lived to 70 or 80, 30 years, and then he's cut off. It's a real shame. That kingdom was going good for a while there if you're so focused on the life, you could wonder, well, where does the death really fit into this picture? Kingdom Christians and cross Christians. And what I want to say is the life and the death belong together inseparably. You can't really have the one and leave the other behind. Just as we read in Acts chapter 10 earlier, Where it said, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And then he was crucified and God raised him on the third day. And this is our message. We are witnesses. People who bear witness and testify to this good news. That God raised him. He's at his right hand. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Repent and believe. You'll find forgiveness. This is the message. They didn't leave the life part out. And they didn't leave the death part out. In Acts 10, Peter holds the two together, and that's the right way to do it. The death is the culmination of the life, the crown and climax of this particular life, as Paul says in Philippians two, that he humbled Christ humbled himself and became obedient even unto the point of death on a cross. The life of obedience leads up to the cross. You can't pull them apart. Without the life, we don't get the death. The death doesn't have the meaning that it has without that perfect life of Jesus that goes with it. But likewise, without the death, the life loses its abiding power. It's just another nice moral teacher who had some good advice, but now he's dead, and oh well. Let's get on with it. Take what, take what we like and leave behind what we don't. But if the death and the life stay together... The life retains its power and the death retains its power. Both retain their eternal meaning for us only together. Each one means what it means only in light of the other. And this morning, I want to focus on the kingdom Christian. We we have a lot we could say from Scripture about the cross Christian. But today, I want to talk to the kingdom Christian. I want to address the significance of the death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection. And to do this, I want to sharpen the question. I want to sharpen the question. In this series that we just finished... Six weeks on repentance. We talked about in the first three weeks the benefits we get from repentance, those gospel-saving benefits we get from repentance, where God heals our hearts and our consciences and heals all those wounds from the past when we get that sin out and He can shape us and make us new. The healing that comes to a conscience that knows the sweet forgiveness of all the things that we're guilty of. What a sweet peace and comfort that gives. Another benefit is that all the record of our sins is wiped clean the corruption in our hearts gets cleaned up and all the eternal consequences of our sin get canceled and put away how do we get those benefits that was the second half of the series what is repentance repentance is from the heart repentance involves a changed life and repentance is ultimately allegiance to king jesus and now the question though the question is this okay, why can't God simply forgive me when I repent? If repentance has all these benefits, and if the requirements of repentance are, it's got to be from the heart, it's got to issue in a changed life, and it's got to look like obedience and allegiance to King Jesus, okay, well, if I do that, why can't God just forgive me? Why all this cross stuff? Why does Jesus need to die in order for God to forgive me? I mean, if you sin against me, you know, you go out there and key my car or something. I mean, forgiveness is me not suing you. (laughs) Forgiveness is me saying, you know what, that was a terrible thing you did, but I'm not going to hold it against you. Don't don't worry about it. I'm going to go get it fixed. I'll pay for it. Just, I forgive you. I release you from what you've done. Now, do I have to go kill somebody? (laughs) Does someone need to die for me to do that? No. Someone sinned against me, I forgave him, and he's forgiven. No death death needed, no crosses. (laughs) So why can't God just do that? That's really the core of the kingdom Christians question. The kingdom Christian has misgivings about all these so-called atonement theories about the necessity and significance of the death of Christ. It doesn't make sense to the kingdom Christian. Why can't God just forgive like any of the rest of us do when we're sinned against? That's a difficult question. That's a question the Bible is aware of and takes seriously. That's a question Paul means For us to have the answer to this morning. In our passage Paul tells us why Jesus had to die. And Paul's answer helps us frame the necessity and significance of the resurrection of Easter as well. And in this brief passage that we just read in Romans 4. Paul tells us why Jesus died, why he was raised and why that's good news for us. So let's look at each of those this morning. Why did Jesus have to die? Look with me at verse 25. First part of the verse, Paul says, who, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Trespasses. We all have an idea of what trespasses mean, because we all know those signs on private property, private property, no trespassing, no trespassers. Now, how do you know when you're trespassing? Well, at some point, you're no longer on public property, you're on private property. When you cross that boundary, you've trespassed, or in other words, transgressed, you've cross the line. Jesus was delivered up for all the ways and times that you and I have crossed the line. What does that mean? What's the line? The line is God's law. The line is the law of God. A trespass is a violation, a transgression of a line that God has drawn in the sand a line that God says you shall not cross. It's a violation of God's law, crossing the boundaries of divine justice. First John five seventeen and three four say that all wrongdoing is sin, and all sin is lawlessness. It's disobedience to a law. All sin, in other words, is crimes against divinity. Our trespasses are crimes against divinity, violations of divine law, divine justice, things like the Ten Commandments. And here's our question. Is it ever okay to let the guilty go free without upholding justice in some way? Is it ever okay for a judge to let the guilty go free without upholding justice in at least some way if there was a dead to rights convicted criminal a terrible criminal i mean make it make it the a horrendous crime someone has murdered a family in cold blood and you're the survivor And you take this guy to court. And he admits it. Yeah, I did it and I'd do it again. I wish you had been there. Okay? He's not remorseful. He's guilty. He admits it. And the judge says, if you promise never to do it again, from your heart if you promise from your heart to live a changed life from now on and never do it again and make, a, make an oath today, I will follow the law. I'll let you go. If you saw that headline on the news, what would your honest reaction be? I mean, I think we all would scream the injustice from the rooftops. There is a judge in this town, in this county, who lets the openly, Violent criminal go free. And he doesn't do a thing to uphold justice at all. That's an unjust judge. And the point is, if God is truly just, he cannot forgive you. When you repent without upholding justice in at least some way, it would be unjust for God to let us go free. Just say, promise not to do it again, guys? Okay, good enough for me. That's an unjust judge. That's an unjust God. So, how does God solve this problem? Because if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven of your sins. Well, wait just a minute. So God has been forgiving the ungodly and the openly guilty. He forgave you, didn't he? he? forgave me, didn't he? So how is God not just this giant unjust judge? How does God address this problem? Paul tells us. Jesus was delivered up, delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up for our trespasses. How does God settle this problem of being able to be just and forgive you? How can God stay just when you're guilty and still forgive you? Answer, he delivers up Jesus, not you. God delivers up. It's literally the word for what Judas did to to Jesus. He hands him over. To the Romans, God hands Jesus over to the cross. He delivers him up. He hands him over to death, and he does it to Jesus, not to you. And he does it for your trespasses, not his. That's how God approaches this problem. Paul explains this better in earlier in the book, in chapter 3. He says in verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the law condemns the whole world. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But... Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared not guilty, given the verdict of righteous. All are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. He put Jesus forward on the cross as the sacrifice that takes our sins. And listen to the result of this, Paul says. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see how Paul's answering our question? How can God be just and still forgive a guilty sinner? Answer, Christ. Christ is the sacrifice that takes that sin, your sin and mine. He pays the penalty for it, which is the death penalty. And now God can be both just because sin's been dealt with and the justifier, the one who forgives you. Now he can be both. He can be the one who upholds justice on the cross and the one who can be fully faithful and forgiving to you when you bow the knee and repent. That's why God's not unjust. It's because this was done for our trespasses It literally means because of our trespasses, on account of our trespasses, on the basis of our own sins, which is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering God condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin did he condemn? It wasn't Jesus's. He didn't have any. It was yours. Whose flesh did he condemn it in? It wasn't yours. Here you are, uncrucified. It was his flesh. The gospel says, God condemned your sin in the flesh of his son. And that is why you can be forgiven, and God is not unjust to forgive you. Why can't God simply forgive when we repent? Because it would be unjust. Why did Jesus have to die? So that our sins would be dealt with justly, and so that God might justly forgive us. That's why he had to die. We all love that promise in one John chapter one, verse nine. You probably heard it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and. Why is that in there? Why is justice an issue? How can He be both faithful to you and just to forgive you of your sins? It's because a sinless Savior died for you, in your place, taking the divine death penalty that our sins against divinity required. We broke God's law. Christ took the penalty of that. And now God can be fully faithful to you when you repent, and He can forgive you, and He can be just when He does so. He's faithful, and He's just to forgive us our sins because of the blood of a perfect Savior that was poured out for you in your behalf so that you can go free with no condemnation and a righteous verdict on your record and in your favor. This understanding of the death of Christ helps us frame Easter. It helps us put the resurrection in its proper focus. I want to say something to the kingdom Christian here. To the kingdom Christian who doesn't really see the point of Jesus' death and only focuses on the life, I want to say this. You, kingdom Christian, are not focused enough on the life of Jesus. (laughs) Now that might sound contradictory. (laughs) I thought the problem was that he's too focused on the life. Well, in a sense, it is. But in another sense, a more important sense, he's not focused enough on the life of Jesus. Because Jesus' life is more than just the lead up to the cross. Jesus has life on both sides of the grave. Jesus' life isn't just, you know, the manger to, to Calvary. Bethlehem to the cross and then it's over. If he didn't have life on the other side... If he didn't go into death and out the other side, we wouldn't be here 2,000 years later, given a hoot about it because it wouldn't matter. Just another good guy who died too soon. History's full of those. I wouldn't be here today. Easter wouldn't be a holiday. Nobody would be that concerned. But Jesus has more than just that earthly life. He's got life now. If the gospel is true and if God's word is right, then he did raise Jesus from the dead. And now he has resurrected life. And we need more focus on that life, not less. Paul says in the next part of verse 25 in our passage, he says, not only was Jesus delivered up for our trespasses, but he also was raised for our justification, for our righteousness, so that we might be declared righteous in the sight of God. That's what justification is. It's the not guilty verdict in the court of heaven. He was put to death for all of our sins, and he was raised for our justification. This is why his life and his death have to go together. You don't pull them apart. And not just his earthly life and his death, and now it's over, but his earthly life, his death and his resurrection, and his ongoing life right now. Jesus died for our justification, and he also rose for it. The two go together. And Paul says this in the next chapter, in chapter 5 of Romans. He says this in verses 8 through 10. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, declared righteous, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Why? Because if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The resurrection life of Jesus has a role to play in our salvation. He says that it's the life of Jesus, not just before the cross, but his life now, that also has a role to play in our justification. In other words... This is a point that Paul makes. He says that. Hold up. There <laughs> we go. Why does the resurrection have anything to do with your justification? Answer because the resurrection is God's justification of Jesus. You see, Jesus was condemned in our place, condemned, paid the penalty, but He wasn't actually guilty of it. And so God declares that Jesus is not guilty by freeing Him from death. The resurrection, Easter, is God's gigantic, in all caps, YES to Jesus his vindication of Jesus. He is who he claimed to be. He has accomplished what I sent him to accomplish. Death has no right to hold him because he's not the sinner. He took the penalty all the way down to the depths of the grave, but the grave can't hold him. It has no right to do so. And so God frees him from it. In vindication of Jesus. It's the justification of Jesus. Not the forgiveness of his sins. He never had any. But he died for hours and it's God absolving him and saying he is not guilty. Never was. He merely bore the sin of others. And now he is vindicated as the righteous holy savior. The resurrection is God's justification of Jesus. And because he lives... He can share his justification, his righteousness with you. Because he's a living Savior, he can share his righteousness with you. Just like he took all your sin on the cross, he can give you all of his holy innocence, purity, and righteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. 21, the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because he lives, he can share his justification with you. Because he lives, he can share his not guilty verdict with you at the final judgment. And because he lives, he can share his eternal resurrection life with you. All of this is yours in Christ. Why is this good news for us today? All this salvation is yours for the taking, yours for the asking in Christ alone when you repent and believe. Not when you clean up your life and get yourself in order and go to church enough Sundays in a row and pray before enough meals and Give enough in the offering and stop cussing as much and stop fighting with your spouse as much and be generally nicer to the checkout person and not get as upset in traffic. And, you know, once you just become a more decent person, then, then it's all for you. No. It's simply a faith commitment to Jesus. It's bowing the knee in repentance and saying, Jesus, you are my Lord you are my all sufficient Savior, and I put my trust in you. And I want, now that I bow the knee to you, I want to get up off this knee and I want to live for you. It's a faith commitment to Jesus. And you get all this righteousness, you get this forgiveness, you get the not guilty verdict, you get the dead raised in you. Right here and right now, before you've done the first good work, before you've had time to obey, you get the whole thing. You get all the forgiveness when you put your faith in Jesus and you claim the gospel promise. This is what the rest of our passage says. In verse 20 following it says, "...no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, here it is, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. When we simply Put our faith in this God who has raised this Jesus. All the gospel promises are ours, free of charge, right up front. It's like the person who tips the waitress a thousand dollars before she's had a chance to even ask what you want to drink, because the gift isn't based on the service. The gospel does that. It doesn't wait to see how quickly you bring the food to the table or how how often I have to ask you for a refill or any of that. God's not waiting to see how many hoops you can jump through and how good your service and performance can be. He simply has the whole thing for you right up front when you put your trust in Him. For some people, this might sound very difficult to do because just like there is The kingdom Christian who's too focused on the life, just like there's the cross Christian who gets too focused on the death and leaves the life behind. There's a third kind of Christian who's too focused on your own faith. You're too worried about, do I really believe enough? Am I sincere enough? Do I really believe this strong enough? Is my faith good enough? And You're you're trying, you're struggling today to put faith in faith. To put trust in your own belief. But that's not the object of your faith. The object of your faith can't be inside, it's got to be outside. This is why you have to look outside yourself, away from you and to Christ on that cross. And to that empty tomb. And to see a risen Jesus today at the right hand of God interceding for you guaranteeing for you all the promises and all the gifts. Don't put faith in faith. Don't stare at your own faith and think, is it good enough? Is it right enough? Is it strong enough? Can I really believe enough? Turn your eyes away from you. Like we read in Colossians 3 earlier, since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God, not on the things of this earth and not even on your faith. The object of your faith is this promise-keeping God and this risen Jesus. Look out and away to Christ. And ask yourself this question, just like Abraham did in verse 21. It says he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Don't ask yourself today, do I really believe it? Is Easter really... Is there really any reality under it? Is there, the tomb really empty? Is Jesus really alive? Do I really, do I really believe it? Don't ask yourself that question. Ask yourself the question Abraham asked. Is God able to do what He promised? can Can God do what He promised He would do, which is raise Jesus to be your perfect Savior and give you full salvation in Him and eternal life and the hope of your own resurrection? Can God do that? If He's God, is He able to do that? Is He good enough to keep that promise? And if you find yourself... Saying, yeah, I think that's true. I think it is true that God can do that. That's faith. Focused on God, not on us. Are you convinced that God is able and God is good? If so, bank on it. Venture on it. Stake your eternity on it. On this almighty Savior this promise-keeping God. Trust in this resurrecting God. And rest assured today that He has new life for you right now in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks and praise for who You are. We do trust You today You are able to do what you've promised. You are the promise-keeping God. And we believe you when you say that Christ has died and Christ is risen never to die again. And that he's risen for us. And that no one can condemn us because you have justified us. You have forgiven us. Christ has paid it all. And in him alone, we have the hope of eternal life increase our faith by helping us to look away from ourselves and to put all of our faith, hope, trust, and reliance upon you today and to find you to be our perfect Savior and to find you raising the dead in us and giving us a new heart and a new life, experiencing you change us from the inside out and making us new and giving us the hope of eternity with you. Would you do that for us today? as we look away from ourselves to you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.